This is Hughes Pop Wrestling Podcast. How's everybody doing tonight? Tonight, our guest is the current AIWF World Television Champion. He is the one-man enterprise, the bona fide certified all-around sports entertainer, endorsed by the wrestling gods himself, Hollywood Flynn Hendricks. Tonight is Flynn Flynn Hendricks' anniversary of his first wrestling pay-per-view. Welcome to the show, Flynn Hendricks. How are you doing today, my guy? Uh, Right now, I am thoroughly impressed that that introduction was done as smoothly as it was because knowing even me i would stumble over that so i mean fantastic and you know funny you mentioned the the anniversary of the pay-per-view thing too because literally this time a year ago i'm i'm backstage getting ready to figure out when i'm getting carted out to the stadium to do that that spot on the pay-per-view or premium live event whatever you want to call it now so it's i guess serendipitous that we're doing this right now it's fantastic but i'm glad to be here no problem. Thank you for showing up. You know, I got to start of the I have a start off question, but because it's your number one first year anniversary of that pay per view, let's talk about that pay per view. How what, sure. what can you walk us through that night, that day, and the whole event? Man, okay, so that was my first time being back with WWE since 2014. I was there uh, originally the week after the Ultimate Warrior passed away, two weeks after WrestleMania 30. Um, So the night they did the tribute for him and everything, I was there. And that was, back then, that was a very nerve-wracking experience. I was a little bit younger, but that was in those Vince McMahon days when you would hear about people walking on eggshells backstage. And that's no exaggeration. (laughs) And you were told, you know, don't talk to them if you bump into them. But who do I bump into coming out of catering, walking down the hall? We make eye contact. I'm supposed to look at this man and just say, nothing? Like, here he comes, and I just say, you know, Mr. McMahon, thank you for having me here. And he goes, I'm glad you're here, pal. And then it just kept going. But, you know, it's like, if I'd have followed that rule, I might have just been thrown out right there. But going back this time, I I didn't really know what to expect. I wasn't there with anybody that I knew. Um, But it was very laid back, very low key. There was five of us, and the environment was a lot more welcoming, a lot more laid back. Like, we could go out and sit around ringside while they were prepping things. Nick Khan and his youngest son came out there and, you know, everybody just out there cutting up. The Undertaker came by and talked to a few of us, uh, got to cut up with Charles Robinson. You know, like it's just really laid back, really low key. And then Jason Jordan comes and pulls a few of us aside and says, Hey, uh, we need you guys for a security segment tonight. Um, it was me, a guy named Luke Sampson, who's from the nightmare factory down in Georgia. And, um, it was a female trainee of Dr. Tom Pritchard's who ended up doing the nurse segment right after for Liv Morgan and Ron as well. And then there was another guy from uh, Louisiana that I can't remember his name for the life of me, but we all got to do that spot and had no idea it would be front and center. Cause I'm just thinking, don't get in the stars way. Don't get in the stars way. But right. man, it was a, it was a surreal experience. Nice, nice, nice. Well, first of all, I'm going to show you, you got some fans here. <clears throat> Have faith. That's Miss Dawn from uh the from TikTok, and um we have uh, another one, Joe Haglund. Nice beard. <laughs> so the Huge Pop Wrestling Podcast. Um, welcome to our show, and we'd love to start off by tell us about Flynn Hendricks. For sure. So let's see. Um, where do you want to start? Do you want from the beginning? Do you want the the home life? What do you? Where do you want me to start with that? There's a bunch of different places we can go. 
Let me see. Um, I next on the thing is you're acting. So from the beginning, I guess shoot from the beginning. Okay. I mean, I, I grew up in a in a house where I didn't have like the strongest father figure. I'll go ahead and put that out there now. Um, if it wasn't for my godparents, you know, helping and my grandmother helping support my mom, me and my sister would nowhere be anywhere near where we are today. So if it wasn't for them, I wouldn't even have a, a strong foundation for what a father should be or anything like that. I would have had no opportunities to pursue my goals. And, you know, whether they've understood it or not, this is what I've pursued. And on and off, you know, I've tried to walk away from it. But I mean, like they, they gave me the opportunity to do so many things. I had a musical background because of them. Um, I had a chance to go to college because they were able to help and keep me on the right track to pursue things instead of just being a, a guy that ended up in trouble. But, you know, a lot of a lot of my life has been having to grow up a little bit quicker because I felt with my dad out of the picture most of the time. I was the older brother. I had to help my mom and. I didn't have a rebellious phase like most people did. I might have had an attitude here and there, but I love her to death. But my sister was the one that would turn the hairs gray and kind of had to, whether I needed to or not, be the be a second parent in that regard. So I kind of had to grow up a little bit quicker. And it, I don't want to say it robbed me of childhood, but it just, it made me grow up a little bit quicker, whether I realized it or not. And it's, kind of something that I've carried over to this day too, where I don't really see the fun in things until they happen. But I was also very shy at the same time. So getting into entertainment, getting into you know drama back in, in middle school and everything, being that fat kid that wasn't really talkative or outgoing, it gave me a chance to explore these different characters and have fun and show personality that I probably wouldn't have got to show to anybody in a classroom or outside of that or even at home because I'm in my room reading a book, doing homework or just trying to stay off from the mom and the sister fighting and all that fun stuff. And then band trips, I'm just sitting in the back of the bus trying to sleep till we get there and hoping nobody pulls a prank on me, you know, just yeah. waiting to get that performance high. But then college comes along. Uh, I didn't end up pursuing music like I thought I would, but I found out a guy a year younger than me in high school that we had mutual friends with was a professional wrestler about 10 minutes from my house uh, at a place called stadium Inn in Nashville. Okay. And, you know, I, I find out about it. And a guy named Tony Falk was the one that ran the promotion, ran the training school. And at the time, Chris Michaels, uh, legendary guy on the independence, I'm sure he'll come up more in this conversation was originally going to be the one to train me, but he and Tony had a falling out. So he suggested I just go and continue and talk to Tony and go from there. Um, I completely skipped over this part, but my sophomore year of high school, I find out I've got family in Memphis that is closely connected to Coco Beware. And originally he was going to be the guy that was going to train me once I finished college. But this other situation falls into my lap. He knows Tony and I explain the situation to him. He gives me the blessing and says, as long as you're going to continue going to school throughout this, I support what you're doing. And I know Tony will take care of you. So we get into that. And I mean, it, it gave me a drug that pretty much kept me away from other drugs, to be completely honest. Like I never had to chase an addiction or chase a high because this performance thing, going from a shy kid to just being able to unleash it, even if I was uncomfortable being the good guy or the baby face, the, uh, the protagonist, whatever you want to call it. At the beginning, I wasn't comfortable in that regard, but I loved performing whether the people cheered or booed or not. And it gave me a chance to grow out of, being the fat kid in high school to a 140 pound, 18 year old to 
this right here. And I mean, it's just, it's grown and it's grown and it's grown. But like I mentioned earlier, you know, I tried to walk away several times as well and it, it never worked out, you know, started a family, thought I wanted to be done. Then it seemed like the perfect time came back inadvertently walked away another time, just didn't renew my license in some States and thought, okay, this is it. But, you know, had two kids at that point and I realized I, I just didn't feel fulfilled anymore. And I, I noticed a guy named Steve Bloom has ads popping up on Facebook for how to become a voice actor, find out my neighbor up the streets, a voice actor and start pursuing all this stuff. And, you know, you find a chance to be creative and pursue these endeavors. Like you put a lot of time and a lot of money into it, like you do with wrestling and you realize you're having fun, but unless you're performing in a workshop, cause this is all going on during COVID at the same time, you don't really get that high of performing in front of people anymore. Um, like you can do it in, in a zoom setting. I've done improv with people across the world in zoom settings and had fun. I've done directed sessions, but when you're not in front of that crowd, it's like you're getting a fix, but you're still chasing the dragon because you don't get those opportunities. But then as things started to lighten up with COVID, I got more opportunities to do some independent film work and then do some stuff in comedy clubs. Uh, I joined the American Immersion Theater and started doing like improv shows with groups and individually for dinner settings and different things like that. And in all honesty, if I hadn't had the wrestling before that, I would not have had the confidence to jump in like I did with this because, uh, you know, a lot of people in the acting world told me that wrestling is not going to help you here. Like somebody like a Bob Bergen, who people may know as the voice of Porky Pig, you know, like he said, wrestling's not going to help you here, but it, it's helped me quite a bit. And I, I was able to bring that up to him after the fact. And his words were, I'm glad I was wrong. Right. But then when I come back into this because, you know, somebody like Terry England and Vic the Bruiser say they want me to come back. You come back and you realize you've got all these different things in your repertoire now. And everybody's out here doing these athletic things now where everybody's doing boom, 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 all these different offensive moves back to back to back. I get a chance to come back and be different because I'm bringing a hashed out character that I fully am immersed in was authentic who I am that these people pick up on and believe in. And it gives me a chance to be different and be authentic at the same time where somebody else on the show may not be as authentic. They may be entertaining, but it's just a different flavor to it. And it's made it so much more fun coming back that I've got so much more in my, in my wheelhouse now that I can do, but I'm also not putting the same wear and tear on my body, if that makes sense. And I know I, right. I took the long way around to get to the answer on that, but the acting has been something that just, it's been a godsend more than anything, whether I've realized it in the moment or not, but it's helped center me. It's helped ground me and it's helped me be in the moment where I can experience and appreciate these moments that are happening, like the SummerSlam experience. And, you know, it's just, it's a whole different world that I can't really describe unless you've been in it, then you know, you know what's going on and what I'm, what I'm trying to articulate here. Okay. Awesome. So growing up, it sounds like you didn't watch much wrestling as a kid growing up. In all honesty, um, it's so funny because I go back and I've seen home videos, you know, like first Thanksgivings and things like that. What's on TV in the background? Survivor Series of all things is on. So it's like it's always been around me. Um, my grandmother and grandfather used to go bowling and dancing with Nick Goulas and his wife back in the day. Um, 
my godfather would always watch Monday Night Raw in the in the late nineties. I remember the first thing I ever saw on WWE was Stone Cold versus The Undertaker. Then didn't really stay connected to it. Saw the This Is Your Life rock segment. I think everybody was really high on that, whether they cared about the ratings or not and all that. Yeah. But I, I still didn't get into it right away. And then I, I know we just passed the anniversary for it, but we were on a family vacation down in Daytona Beach and we got tickets to Bash at the Beach 2000, where the whole incident with Hulk Hogan, Vince Russo, Jeff Jarrett, and all that stuff happens. And I'm 10 years old, about to be 11 at the time. And I don't remember anything from that pay-per-view other than two drunk guys fighting behind me in the back. Oh, it's so crazy that, like, that that moment in history, that's the only thing I remember. But And I still have the ticket stub uh, over in my storage closet here. But it's just like, that's the only thing I remember. But I didn't even remember his, witnessing history happen. But in early 2002... Um, a group of my friends was getting real big into it because Triple H was coming back from his quad injury. Uh, Vince was bringing in the NWO and they were all getting together to watch these shows. And I just, I didn't want to be the guy that was left out. So I got into it and then, you know, I turned it on and it's Hulk Hogan attacking the rock with a, with a hammer and then hitting him with a semi truck. Like, what is this? You know, like, is this something you can see on TV? Then it builds to WrestleMania 18. And I'm just like in, with what I see and the reactions these people are getting. And then, lo and behold, a month and a half later, here comes Judgment Day to Nashville. So my mom gets tickets, me and my friend Chris go with her, and I I'm hooked from the gate. You, know, you see Undertaker get his fourth championship. You see a Hell in a Cell match. You see Eddie Guerrero and Rob Van Dam, one of Steve Austin's last pay-per-view matches at the time. Like, There's so many things that happened that was such a great pay-per-view, and it's like, this is how my fandom started. Like, Ruthless aggression was where I got bought in hook, line, and sinker for pretty much until COVID happened. Wow. Wow. Crazy. So, it JB, is. got anything for him? Yeah. What made you want to become a wrestler, a professional wrestler? See, I. this is where it all kind of came together for me. I mentioned, you know, knowing, knowing Coco earlier in the conversation, I met him – in Memphis because we went down on my spring break for a SmackDown that was happening leading up to that WrestleMania 21. I meet him and he's maybe an inch or so taller than me. I'd always thought about it, you know, wrestled in the backyard with my friends and all that stuff. But it's like, I wonder if I could actually do this. I meet him and I see that it's, he's a, he's a thick guy, but he's not the tallest guy in the world. So maybe there's a chance. And then he starts talking about training I wasn't exactly sold on it yet, but then a couple weeks after the fact, I see WrestleMania 21, which was a pretty stacked card in itself, but the one match that has always like stayed at number one for me happened on that card, and it was Shawn Michaels and Kurt Angle, first time meeting, and I, I don't know what made that match so special or what the chemistry was with those two guys, but that put Shawn Michaels as my number one favorite to this day, and that match just... That's what made me want to want to do this, like the reactions, the storytelling, the way the commentators reacted to it. Then you find out the way people backstage reacted to it. It's like two pros of their craft just working a masterpiece, breaking some rules, breaking some time limits, and then still getting applauded for it. And then you find out that it's impacted so many other people along the way. It's just it, it's something special. But that's that's what hooked me in. And I just I felt deeper in love with it from there. Wow. Awesome, man. Thanks for sharing the stories. Uh, of course. So 
obviously in the beginning there has to be a training school you go to and all this stuff so can we walk through the trade that that kind of concept of training where you train who trained you and how really rough was it so here's where it started out um in this hotel called the stadium inn uh as soon as you walk in the door just to paint a picture of how we'll say seedy it was right by the desk to the right when you walk in it says drug dealers and prostitutes keep walking you go further into the building and there's these two double doors that used to be a buffet room and there's a wrestling ring in there now my first couple of sessions this was a pretty nice wrestling ring there were um three different promoters that ran out of there it was tony falk um i think the hotel owner his name was bill de shields i didn't really have a lot of interactions with him uh he ran a promotion there, and then there was another guy that ran on a Wednesday night, and it was his ring. Well, as things go in wrestling, they had a falling out, so he just up and took his ring. So I come back uh, my third Sunday into training, and there's a completely different ring in there. It looks like it survived, like, three three missiles being dropped on it. Um, the ropes were made of tape. The turnbuckle pads were made of tape. It just – it had seen better days. Um then come to find out the canvas of it was literally like a boxing ring almost. It was nothing but carpet and plywood with a with a cover over it. You take your first fall, your first bump on that, and it just it takes the wind out of you, even if you've gotten used to bumping. But when I got in there, I had no clue how to do a front flip. I had no clue how to do shoulder rolls, any of that stuff. I was very uncoordinated, had no clue what to do, but thankfully – the trainers I had at the time were, you know, Tony Falk. He was kind of overseeing it. There was a guy based out of Chicago named AM Vision who was very instrumental in helping me. And then Tony's son, LT, was very instrumental in completing the training. But, you know, different guys like Tracy Smothers or even Kid Cash on occasion would pop in too. And, you know, they would throw their input in. They would have us run matches and drills and all that. But it's it's funny because I learned so much stuff that I never thought I could do. And now it's like second nature. I may not get the most height on, you know, doing a flip or something like that, but I can do it, which is impressive enough to me. But I mean, it's just like, you don't realize how difficult it is to hit the ropes or run the ropes and something that kid cash had me do. And this was years into my career, run the ropes straight for five minutes. And that's the only time I have ever done a drill or anything physically active or you know, like I, I train pretty intensely in the gym. I do cardio, different things like that. But doing that for five minutes is the only time I've ever thrown up or been forced to throw up after something like that. It's its its own animal, and it's so different that there's really no way to describe how intense it is. But if you've got an athletic background, you'll probably come in and adapt to it a little bit quicker. But getting used to falling was probably the hardest thing because your body's not used to that. You, you try to avoid that, but you know, it's just, you have to get it down to a science. You have to learn to do it and not smack the back of your head. You have to do all this stuff. And the first couple sessions, you do walk away with bruises from hitting the ropes or a stiff upper back or whatever it may be. Like you walk away from all this and there've been people, there were people in my training class that didn't come back because that wasn't what they signed up for. But once you get used to it, I hate to say it becomes second nature. You just don't really realize it until you slow down again. But it's uh, it will definitely take some getting used to because the human body is not made to to go through that. But you build up this callus to it that you eventually become used to it. 
but it's it's very intense if you're being trained correctly. Now, in training, do they teach you more than just hitting the ropes and taking bumps? Do they teach you promos and all that good stuff? Absolutely. If if it's a good training school, they will teach you that. They'll teach you the foundations, the psychology, and they won't move you on until you get the basics of that because you can go out there and wrestle, but if you don't have a personality, these people have nothing to connect to. So a good school, and this is something that they did, um, I, I do wish we would have focused on it more, but a lot of my stuff was kind of, People discovered it after the fact. Like I would cut a promo in training, but then it was a lot of in-ring stuff more than anything. But when I finally got the chance to go heel is when they discovered I could talk. And then it just became a part of my thing from here on out. Oh, and Rick is in the chat. Hello, Rick. But um, yeah, it's, it's definitely something that I think a good school should teach. And then psychology too. That was something that came a little bit later, but in all honesty, I learned more about psychology with the people I was around and the people that I rode with that were veterans because you can lay a match out. You can say, I'm going to do this, this, and this, but if the crowd doesn't react to it, is it worth doing? If you can't explain why you're going to do it, why does it make sense to put that effort in? You know, And that's something that really, that really wanted – that, or that I really wanted to understand. And it's something that I think has helped me greatly because you see a lot of people still that may have been in for a good while that don't understand the full basics of psychology. And that's another thing that acting has helped me with too, especially method acting, because you get in the mind of this character or this person. Why would I do this? Why would I kick this person in the knee if I'm cowering in the corner? Why would I do this? Why would I do that? And it's just, it, it makes it make more sense and it makes it more relatable to the people that are paying the tickets to see it too. Okay. But it, it's something that I know Dr. Tom teaches now at his school up in Knoxville or around that area. And I know that it's something that like the performance center works on quite a bit as well. Like the, the promos, the character development. And I think that's the biggest thing right there is the character development should be one of the biggest things along with the foundations and the fundamentals that, wrestling schools do focus on because if you don't have that you're not a total presentation you don't have the full package correct yeah correct yeah so would it be safe to say that those people that call wrestling fake if they were spent one day hitting those ropes and taking bumps do you think they'd change their mind i would hope so now there are some people and i think we i hate to say we figure it out in today's day and age that no matter what happens no matter what they see in front of them, they will deny it. They will argue. But I definitely think there are some people that would not be able to make it through the training, let alone be able to deny it after the fact. And I mean, I even had a guy at a convention I was at earlier this year and we'd met the year before. He told me his biggest goal was I wanted to be chopped by a wrestler. I wanted to know what it felt like. I wanted to know if it was fake and Lo and behold, I mean, and if you want to go go to my link tree after this and check out the video, it's on my YouTube. I chopped him and he ended up falling to his knees because like you find out that that's an open hand palm to somebody's chest and it's not fake. Like and granted. I hate using this, but just because something might be predetermined doesn't mean it's always going to go that way. I've been in tons of matches where somebody has gotten hurt, where somebody's knee has been blown out. And you have to change things on the fly to adapt to that. My best friend in a match before me blew his knee out. And, you know, everything just kind of goes into topsy-turvy right there. And if you don't know what you're doing, 
you have to be able to adapt to that. So what if that guy was supposed to be the guy that wins? What happens then? Is that is his injury fake? Is a body slam fake? You know, and you hear the old adage from chiropractors too, taking one body slam, taking one bump is the equivalent of being rear-ended at 20 or 30 miles per hour. And I see a chiropractor once a week. I should probably go more. But, I mean, it takes its toll. It, it may be predetermined, but the physical impact and the miles you put on your body in the cars or if you're flying, that's just as detrimental to your body as the physical impact you're doing. So it you can call it fake, but it's really an insult because it's like calling an actor fake. You know, we know that it's entertainment more than anything. It's a character. That's not this person in real life. It's it's for your entertainment, but this person is using their body as their means and their medium to entertain you. So it should be given a lot more respect than it really is. Yeah. Justin, you got anything? Yeah. What had to be your toughest match that you've been in? The toughest match that I've been in? Oh, okay. Man. That's a tough one. Uh, there is one that, that jumps out to me. Uh, this goes back to 2012, actually. Um, and it was right after the 4th of July. I was wrestling for a company called NWA Main Event at the time. Um, and this was probably right around the time of the Bruce Tharp version of the NWA. I think Rob Conway was the world champion. And I'd already done, you know, one challenge against Kevin Douglas, who was champion at the time. Um, I was the NWA Mid-America X Division champion. And we were performing in a building in Nashville in the dead of summer that had no air conditioning, no AC, nothing. Um, and I'm not going to lie. I was a little hungover from the 4th of July the night before. Got up, went to work, came there. Um, but we did an hour-long Ironman match in that building. And we went all over. Like We I, we had some issues with this promoter who was a little bit of a shady character in of himself. Uh, you know, like We destroyed the concession stand. We fought all around this big gym that we were in. And for an hour, we did that with no air. Like they had to open the doors. You could see the fans sweating and everything. And, you know, it didn't hit me until well after the fact. And well, after I was home, it was just like this massive adrenaline dump. And I, it was, it was intense, but it was very fulfilling. But, um, and I do hate it for the guys that had to follow us because again, with the issues with that promoter, this, six-month angle that had been built up was made as the semi-main event just to put another match on after the fact. But those guys were, as good as their match was, they were set up to fail because of where they were at. And then, you know, I guess I'll say another match that happened right before that that was a tough one. From what I remember of it, um, I tagged with my friend that I mentioned earlier that blew his knee out recently before my match. We tagged against uh, Cedric Alexander, who's now with WWE, and another guy. And I forget what the spot was, but as soon as we went to lock up, one of them just completely like just drilled me in the forehead and knocked me loopy. And I don't remember tagging, you know, tagging my partner in anything. I just remember coming to on the apron saying, What happened? And then he tags me back in. We get into the match. I take a double super kick and they make contact again as I'm on my knees and it's just like, man. So, I mean, like in, in 2012, those would probably be the two roughest matches I had, but I mean, for different reasons, but I mean, still I can joke about it now because I didn't have any serious damage out of it, but it's like redacted memory. Like you start the footage, lock up, 
black screen fade to the finish right there. They're standing over us one, two, three, but I mean, it was fun stuff. And then, you know, saying that I did an hour long Iron Man match, especially after, you know, the Shawn Michaels, Bret Hart thing and how big of an influence Shawn was to me, like that was really cool to say that I did that and prove that I was in shape enough to actually do it. That's awesome. That's awesome, man. So is there a particular goal or mission that drives Flynn Hendricks? In all honesty, it's it's kind of a two-part thing. The biggest things are providing for my family more than anything because I would love to say that this is what I do full-time. I would love to say that you know, being a traveling world champion pays my bills. I would love to say that being an entertainer pays my bills. But I would also love to say that what I'm doing and chasing these dreams set the example for my kids to know that no matter what they want to do, no matter how big their goals may be, that it's attainable. It's 100% attainable. Even if people tell you that you're, you're aiming too high or your goals are outlandish, then good. You're on the right path. You know, like just nothing is out of reach if you believe in it. So it's just setting that example for them and anybody else that may be, may be worried about that or may need somebody to look up to. Those are the biggest things that, that drive me. And it's more so doing it for them than doing it for myself sometimes. I got to say, I did some reading on you and, um, you are 100% a family man first. I, I get that out of the reading, you know, and you said you, you touched on um, mental health. Oh, yeah. And taking care of yourself. And um, I'll be honest with you, the one of the reasons why I do this podcast is because we work with foster kids in the emergency shelter here. We have eight at a time and it's a it's very stressful. It can get very overwhelming. And this Eight o'clock to nine, nine thirty at night. It gets me away from reality for a minute. Oh yeah, and that that helps my mental health because it's just chaos, you know. And so when I read this about you, you know, you you took a break from it because uh, you got married, you had two boys, you know, and you went through a rough spot when you lost your dog or your, your dog. And that was a whole. So oh, I don't want I don't want I don't want you to go into that if you don't want to. But I I don't mind it at all because in all honesty. Um... I hate to say it, not tomorrow, Monday, but Tuesday will be the anniversary. Uh, like 2022, when I jumped back into everything, was kind of like the perfect rise and fall of the tides because as one thing went good personally, something went bad professionally or vice versa. Something went great professionally. Something went bad personally. And, you know, on August 1st, it's the anniversary of the dog that we rescued last year in the midst of losing our other two attacked our youngest child and we had to go to the emergency room. So, I mean, it was literally um, just a walking crap show last year because we start the year off like with five months of taking our first dog to the emergency vet and to, to fill people in on the story. Um, he was our second dog. We got him not too long after we'd been married, but a couple months before our first son was born. So he kind of helped us get ready to be parents because, you know, we had to wake up in the middle of the night, take him out, just basically things you would do as a parent with a baby. Right. And, you know, just in the fall of 2021, he started getting these big swollen lumps on his face. He started losing his hair. And I thought it was because we had a yellow jacket nest in the backyard. He was just allergic because he was a white pit bull. And, you know, back and forth emergency trips to the vet, all this different stuff, thousands of dollars in bills, stress racking up. And, you know, come, come January, we think he's all right. He has like two good weeks and then it just declines. He goes to 
skin and bones, hair falling out. He can't hold his bladder anymore. He can't even eat. And, you know, like, so we, we make the tough decision to, to, you know, just do the best thing for him. So we took him to the emergency vet and, you know, before they even finished the, the full injection, he was, he was gone. He was tired. He was, you know, he was ready to go. It, it was not easy because it was like losing a kid. And then, in the midst of all that, we find another dog that the Humane Society rescued down uh, about 45 minutes south of Nashville uh, from this terrible dog fighting. He'd been starved. He'd been malnourished. And they'd rehab. Nobody was adopting him. And he was near an identical clone of our of the dog we just lost. Uh, the dog we lost was named Mo. This dog was named Bo. He was black instead of brown. You know, he had black spots instead of brown spots. But, I mean, he was the sweetest dog you would see in these pictures. And even when we got him home, he was, he got along with our older pit bull Elliot that I'd had since 2012. But in the midst of all that, uh, Elliot, who would have been 10 that year, 10, yeah, 10 that year. He, um, he just randomly lost use of his back legs and come to find out he had developed an inoperable tumor on his spine. And, I had to go this one alone because, you know, he was kind of my baby. My wife loved him no matter what, but I, he'd been with me through everything and made the tough call there. And then doesn't click till after the fact, but we lose him on the day that would have been our other dog's birthday. So, you know, just, it all kind of hits at once, but then things start picking up again. Things start getting good. And then we do the SummerSlam thing and then, you know, I'm, I come home from the, from the pet store. I got the dog a new toy and he's playing with it. The one time that we're not in the room with our two-year-old son and him, he goes up and tries to grab the toy and he just, he gets him right on the forehead. And it was, you know, the most traumatic thing. And it was a lot of, you know, like, is there a way we can keep him? Is there a way we can fix this? What do we do? Can we rehome him? Can we, because I, if there was a way to keep him in the house and keep, you know, keep our kids safe, I would have done it no matter how much it would have cost, how much debt it would have gone in. But there was absolutely no way. And I, we tried to find somebody to rehome him that would understand the situation. And it just, it, it didn't come to that. And the only option was, you know, cause he was still growling at our, at our son. Um, we, we had to put him to sleep too. So we ended up losing three dogs in the span of seven months and, it just, and in the middle of all that too, my, my godfather got diagnosed with cancer. My mother had open heart surgery. So it was literally like one thing after the other, just trying to get my head above water to, you know, to, to get a breath and just get a moment where something wasn't going wrong. And it, you know, it took its toll at home. It took its toll on everything. And I buried myself so much in this podcasting and wrestling that I was trying to avoid facing it. And the only real, like, escape I got from any of it was watching my oldest son play baseball more than anything because there was no stress, no worry. It was just watching him have fun and watching him develop. Right. But I, what should have been an escape in a healthy way ended up becoming an obsession with the podcasting, with acting and, and wrestling. And it just, it, it caused a little bit of tension at home as well, but we, we got past that. Now we're in a, we're in a better spot, but it's just, we've talked about it. I, you know, I've started going to therapy about it because it, it's something that I was, I thought I could handle on my own and I was completely wrong. And right. even the therapist said, you know, like, I don't know how you made it that long. And 
didn't break because that's because that was like just blow after blow after blow. And I still don't know. I, I hope I never wish that on anybody, even if I play a bad guy when the red lights on like that's that's the absolute worst year of my life, hands down. And I would never wish that on anybody. But like, what should have been my escape through all this? I ended up using the wrong way and just burying myself in it so much that it just it became an addiction all over again, but probably the wrong way. But man, it was like I said, it was the worst year of my life in more ways than I ever would have expected. Wow, man. Justin. So like with your mental health. Yeah. Um, with your mental health, what, what your mental health, what motivate, what motivates you every day in your mental health? Cause I deal with like PTSD, bipolar yeah. anxiety and all that. And I, I'll be honest, I've got, you know, anxiety and depression. Um, and for the longest time, my wife had been, making the suggestion you should talk to a doctor about it you should talk to a doctor about it and i always thought because you see the commercials there's all these different side effects that could come with it and it's like it, it can fix this but you're gonna have these three things after the fact well i ended up biting the bullet because i've known my doctor he's been a family friend and he's never steered us wrong so i i got on antidepressants and it it has made a big difference in everything i started talking to a therapist um and the biggest thing on top of that was I didn't want to bring all of this negativity to my kids because, as I mentioned earlier, I didn't have the best father figure to look up to from a biological standpoint, and I didn't want to be the same thing for them. And, you know, they ended up having some PTSD out of it, too, like because I still deal with it from, from the dog attack. And it's, you know, it's it's one of those things that you can't get through on your own and you have to put the man pride away, just be willing to talk about it because it can devolve into things that are worse. It can lead you to like different addictions that can lead you down a path you might not come back from. And nobody wants to deal with the after effects of that. And it's just, everybody deserves a chance to be happy. And sometimes it just takes getting out of your own way to get to that point and just talking to somebody. And if there's anybody that's hesitant about that, I, I'm endorsing it right now. Don't be afraid to talk to somebody. Absolutely, man. And, you know, that's the, what we all need to hear that because absolutely, face it or not, I used to say, nah, I'm not, I don't have anxiety. No. I don't have that. And I found out real quick, I was fooling myself. I, you know, you can't hold things in. You gotta, yeah. you gotta find an outlet. You've you got to. And so I thank you for sharing your story. Of course. And it, and on top of that too, I mean, it just, it inadvertently ends up coming out the wrong way to the people that you love the most. And yeah. that's not fair to them in any way, shape or form. And again, I say this as a guy that plays a villain when the red lights on, but in, in all honesty, prioritize yourself, prioritize your mental health, even if it means you have to be a little selfish because you know, some people may not have your best interest at heart. I hate to say that, but, you know, you've got to have a full cup so that you can give to others who may not. And you, if you have to be selfish to do that, then by all means, please prioritize yourself. And if they truly love you, they'll understand. Right. 100%, man. So um, let's talk about seminars. Uh, yeah. how, how important to you are seminars for wrestlers, for acting, for fans? And how how important are I guess it would be a, a big combination question. How important are the fans to you and the interactions and the meet and greets and so on and so forth? Oh, for okay. So that is a great question. And this is something that I live by 
right, wrong, or indifferent, but I mean, I look at it as every day we have a chance to learn something new. We never stop learning. And these seminars, not everything that comes out of one may be something that you can apply to yourself, your life, or your career, but you can also learn things not to do. Like there's something you can learn because these people that we're paying to go to these seminars for, whether it's acting, self-help, wrestling, whatever it is, they've achieved what we're trying to achieve now. They've been to the top of the mountain where we're trying to go. So if you can financially afford it or if you can pull off a way to get there, make that chance because it's only a better investment in your future and your career because you never know that word of mouth. They may still be connected to somebody where you're trying to go and that person may know a casting director, may know a booker, may know talent relations that says, hey, I need somebody that can do this or that looks like this. Oh, well, this guy really stood out at my seminar. Let me give him a call or get you in contact. It's not only a great way to learn, but it's a great way to network and make connections and get yourself out there. And it's just, it's un, what's the word I'm trying to say? It's invaluable knowledge. You can't put a price tag on it, especially if you're dedicated to this. Because I mean, the the list of guys that I've been able to train with, like like I mentioned earlier, Tracy Smothers, so early into my career, knowing the impact that he's had across so many people that are still like at the top of the game right now, that still hold him in such a high regard, that still talk about him on a weekly basis on podcasts. Like, it's insane. And then, you know, like somebody like a Kid Cash, who's near my size, running you through a military-style, you know, uh, training weekend that you're also dumb enough to go and make, you know, wrestle shows on in between two. <laughs> like, it, it literally gets you ready for, like, what it would be like on the road when you're on three, four, five days a week and you don't get a chance to go home. You maybe get to sleep two or three hours in a hotel. Then you have to get up, travel, go to the gym, all this stuff. Like it literally prepares you and helps you get ready so that when you show up there, even if you have no idea what you're doing, you look like you know what you're doing and you look like you belong there. And you have a little bit of confidence to know that I was trained by somebody that was here. I at least know something to do when I'm here that can help me or make me stand out <laughs> get me shown the door you know but it's the most invaluable thing that you can do and the best investment you can make in whatever you're trying to do awesome man thank and you going back to the fans for example um this is one i i hate to say like i clash with people on this but there you know there's a lot of old school uh mentality that a bad guy should not associate with a good with the fans you know and everything but if they're doing meet and greets before a show and I'm out there, if the people haven't been following the product or they're new and they don't know that I'm a bad guy, or if it's a fan that may be afraid to approach me because they've seen me be that bad guy, that's my chance to be a little human with them so that that way they have a little bit of an investment in me, whether they turn around and hate me for it, you know, an hour or two later into the show or whatever it may be, or that eventual time that I've, finally become the the good guy you know like it gives them a chance to get invested with that person because if they're not invested they're not going to boo they're not going to cheer they don't care and if you're not getting a reaction out of them then what are you doing that there's a chance too you might not come back that promoter might not book you again you know and if they can get involved with you and know they'll get a reaction of you if they throw some booze or they throw some heat your way then it's it's a job well done because these people come to be part of the show, not, you know, sometimes 
if the entertainer in the ring doesn't know how to, you know, pull the strings and keep them in check, they may overtake the show and completely steal the thunder from the performer, but they want to be involved. They want to boo. They want to be brought in because if the good guy's getting his licks on you, they want to cheer for him. They want to see the bad guy who's cheated their hero for so long finally get his due, and then he cheats them again. And then they're so invested again that they, you know, like, they are the lifeblood of what we do because I mentioned, you know, earlier COVID was kind of when I stopped watching wrestling full time because something was missing and it was the fans. It was the energy and the performers have even said it too. It's, it's a process to get that adrenaline rush when you don't have thousands of people cheering for you, you know, and you've got to worry about all these protocols and different things. But when you can have people, even if it's a small crowd of 50 or a hundred if they are lively and they are into it, then it makes all the difference in the world and it makes what you're doing mean something. Yeah. I, you're true because I go to a, um, every two months there's an indie show here in town, down the road from me in, in the panhandle of Florida called XIW and mm-hmm. um, an amazing group, an amazing event. And there's some, you know, if there's a talent there that just doesn't interact, you're like, who cares? You know, and he's right. not missed. He's not missed the next show. Exactly. So what they do, I think, is the same thing that you're saying that should be done. They come in there full blazing, and you know who they are, and right. they're interacting. So yeah, um, I, thank you for that, JB. What is the future like for you? Man, that's a tough call. Um, it, it's really hard to say, and it's hard to put my finger on the pulse for what it's going to be because. I wasn't expecting this opportunity with AIWF to pop up right now. I know I'm trying to capitalize and get and travel as many places as I can. Cause I know that there's an opportunity for, you know, out of the country bookings. I've never had a chance to do that so far. I performed in 16 States and I'm about to add a few more to that list within the next year. But, you know, I'm just hoping to, you know, have a profitable safe year with these bookings and these acting endeavors as well juggle them, have a good, healthy home life and be healthy at the same time. But in all honesty, the biggest thing that would be on my checklist is to either, you know, get back to WWE and hopefully get a, have something fall into my lap where it's a long-term deal. Or even if it's with another company, you know, I, if I can make a steady career and a steady living, I'm not going to complain because it gives me a chance to better provide for my family and do it with something I love. But I think the biggest thing that the future is going to hold is a lot more can, you know, uh, what's, what's the best way to say this? A lot more loudmouth, consistent, egotistical Flynn Hendricks spiel, I guess is the best way to say it. More of what you would expect from me and a lot more microphones in my hand for sure, because I want to make sure that everybody remembers that I am the AIWF world television champion and if you want to prove that you're TV ready, you have to beat me. So I guess being the measuring stick of who's TV ready is what's on my on my docket for the foreseeable future. That's awesome. So you're indie wrestler, obviously. You travel from 16 states. You said mm-hmm. is there a lot of is there a lot of road road time where you fly? And if so, what are some of the what is a good story you could tell about the ro- a road trip story? Oh boy. Okay. So I've I've driven more than I've flown. Uh, right now, the only promotion I've ever flown for was uh, Legacy Pro up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, when I did their Showcase of Champions last year and the Black Friday Brawl. But um, 
man. Okay, so I've got I've got two. One's more recent, and again, one goes back to that magical year of 2012. Do you want them both? Do you want me to pick one or the other? Do you guys want to pick? Go both. Why not? Okay, so we'll we'll start <laughs> from 20. We'll start from 2012 then. Um, I won't give this guy's name, but his initials are RBG. He was uh, running a promotion that was associated with NWA out of San Antonio, Texas. Had a pretty stacked lineage behind him of things he's done. We had agreed on this booking five or six months in advance. Actually, it was the night that I had worked Kevin Douglas for the uh, NWA World Junior Heavyweight Championship. We, we worked this out on the way back home from that town. Uh, it was going to be me, the guy I ended up working in that Ironman match, and a third guy going down to San Antonio, Texas in July. Well, it comes down to me and the guy that I worked being the only ones that went. And people were warning us about going ahead of time, saying, you know, like, be careful. This guy might pull some, some shady stuff on you. This might happen. This might happen. And if it does, let me know. Well, talked to him the day that we left. Thought everything was fine. He gave us the hotel we, we had a reservation at. Everything was good. He gave us the address. So we took off. Made a, you know, made a night of the drive down, got down there early in the morning so that we could hopefully check in early and get some sleep before the show that night. Well, we get there early and we can't check in. So we just, you know, park my car out in the parking lot and just roll the windows down, take a nap, uh, wake up, go get some food, come back and try to check in. And lo and behold, sir, we don't have a reservation for you. There was never a reservation made uh, at this Days Inn hotel that we were told, oh. given a reservation number, given a name, everything. It was, it, it wasn't real. So that's that's strike one. Try to call the guy, straight to voicemail. Try to call him again, straight to voicemail. Try to call him a third time, and this, yeah, you know, I ended up leaving him a pretty colorful voicemail. Uh, you know, it's like, what's going on? Like, we agreed on all this stuff. You told us this was going on, this, this, and this. We don't even have the address for the building. So we just need to turn around and go home right now. And then lo and behold, five minutes later, guess who calls back? Uh, so he says, I'm sorry that fell through. I meant to tell you, here's the address for your new hotel. And this is where it gets even better. So <laughs> we go to the hotel. It's in the slums of San Antonio. It's a near dilapidated hotel that his cousin owned. There are no other occupants at said hotel, but me and the guy I rode down with. Right. Um, so the key's just under the mat waiting for us. That's how, you know, how magnificent this was. So we get there. <laughs> There's only cold water. So like we can only take cold showers. I just, I throw my head back, say a few four letter words and just take a nap for two hours get up. I fill my water bottle in the shower because the sink doesn't work again. Go figure. So we go and try to find food. Then we go to this building that's in the back of a Salvation Army building. No signs for wrestling. Nothing. Uh, oh God, and it gets better from here. There were more people in the locker room than there actually were for the show that started an hour and a half late because they didn't know how to work the sound system. <laughs> in a Great building promotion. with no AC. We end up working two times. So we worked uh, different local guys down in individual matches. Then we came back and worked a tag team with his top trainees who were called the Texas Tornadoes. So oh, this, it gets so good here. 
um, with the eight people in the crowd, one of the guys uses cooking oil to make himself look, you know, like, like he's got baby oil on and he's already sweating. I'm already sweating. Uh, we go to do something and I'm supposed to try and do this, but he slides right off of me. It's just like sweat and cooking oil. And he just shoots off like a rocket ship and he gets mad at me for it. And it's like, okay, find the logic in what you're saying. But we get past that. We go to the back. We start waiting. Like we, we change. We get, we're soaking wet. We get back into our dress clothes because we thought it would be appropriate to dress professional. And we sit there, we wait, everybody else is gone. This guy's still there. And we go, um, you know, Hey, do you mind if we get our, our payoff and go? And he goes, Oh, there's no payoff. Uh, excuse me. <laughs> it's, you know, and my mind starts going into instant carny mode. Like, and I start bringing up, like, we talked about this on this day. You gave us this, you told us this, you told us it would be more than we make in Nashville. Yada, yada, yada. But he's like, no, I never, I never said that. I never said that. And like, there's people watching it now. And I'm just trying to find like something I could take that would be of value to what he would promise us and pay. And the only thing I could see was this overweight 13 year old Chihuahua that his ticket lady had sitting in her lap. And I'm like, I wonder if I could take this dog and we could get out of the parking lot before they caught us. But ended up just throwing my hands up in the air. We went and got dinner overslept and got on the road late the next morning and then got a speeding ticket on the way out of Texas. So it was like the best of the worst road trip I could have ever asked. Jesus, I guess, man. (laughs) And then this one uh, was for one of my last times last year going up with WWE. It was in Indianapolis. The the call time was 2 p.m. their time, which would have been 1 p.m. hours. Me and uh, another guy left at 8.30 a.m. Central time which should have given us plenty of time to get up there and, you know, be in the building before call time. We get not even 30 minutes out on the interstate. We get to the Kentucky state line. The interstate shut down. It flooded from a heavy rainstorm we had. So that slowed us down a little bit. They finally got it drained. They got the, you know, the highway crew out there and everything. We get past that. Like just I'm hammering it, watching for cops, trying to make sure we don't see any, we don't get pulled over for a speeding ticket. We get to Louisville. All lanes are shut down. I don't know what it was. There was a big crash. So we had to get off and take these back roads to find the next exit where we could actually get back on the interstate. And we're emailing, uh, you know, the person that booked us. We're texting the talents that that we knew were there and telling them the situation. And I was in near full-blown panic attack mode because it's like, this is my second time back this year. And, it was how long before this? I don't want to mess this up. And they could not have been any cooler about it. I mean, like, we ended up getting there two and a half hours late, but they were so cool about it. It's just like anything that could have gone wrong on that trip for us getting there did. And it's like, who, get, who gets a flooded interstate? Then yeah. an hour later, who gets a shut down interstate? Like, how does that happen? Yeah, and that's not on the same day. But, you know, thankfully, we were cool about it. We got to joke around about it. And, Charles Robinson busted our chops for it. So, I mean, it ended up being a good time. So awesome, man. It was, it was fun. It was like, again, best of a bad situation. You got something to laugh and joke about now. So here I am telling this story. Yeah. JB. I just want to say thank you for everything you do. Keep up the good work. Keep doing what you're doing. 
man, thank you guys for, you know, giving us this platform, giving me the platform to come on here and talk like I know what I'm talking about and just, you know, have some fun chewing the fat with you guys. Thank you for giving me the platform to do it. And thank you for being oh, fans too. No problem, man. So I got children I take care of. They have some quick take questions. Sure. Let's go. Favorite food. Favorite food. Oh man, you start with a hard one. Um, You know what? Can I just say uh, Mexican food? Can I just use that sure. as a, as a yep. broad answer? Okay, cool. Does pineapple belong on pizza? 100% yes. I love Hawaiian pizza. Cartoon. Favorite cartoon? Favorite cartoon. Uh, right now, it's Archer. Okay. Favorite movie? Favorite movie. Okay. It's gone back and forth. Um, I'll give you the one and the 1A, but the one is No Country for Old Men, and the 1A is Anchorman. So it's like opposite ends of the spectrum, but yeah. it's it's a stacked cast in both. Favorite song? Favorite song. Man. Oh, man. Okay. Um, there's a guy, I think he's based out of Nashville, but I, I found it my senior year of high school – uh, the guy's name is Matt Carney. It was on his debut album. It was called Bullet. And it's about a guy that's he's he wrote the song to his wife basically about how she supported him when he was at his lowest of lows trying to get his get his start. And now here he is, like he's touring and everything. So it's very parallel to you know, like what I've done as an entertainer and it, it really stuck with me. But Bullet by Matt Carney, if anybody wants to look that up, is definitely worth a listen. You play video games? Not anymore. I don't have the time, but my son hogs the Xbox, though, so it's all MLB for him. There you go. Um, I see a bunch of figures behind you. Is that what you collect? Yeah, probably more than I should, and I'm also trying to downsize right now, too, because you can kind of see it over my shoulder here. I've got a, a makeshift voiceover booth right here, but okay. I'd like to have a little bit more room for that so that I can have a better sound area, but that's all stuff that you know, like it was my passion in, in middle school and high school, just all the stuff that wasn't cool at the time then, but it's absolutely popular now. Love Dragon Ball, wrestling, Star Wars, all that fun stuff. Awesome. Favorite place to travel to? Favorite place to travel to? Um, vague answer, but honestly, anywhere with a beach, anywhere that's got sand and water. Most recently, oh. it was clear water, so we'll go with that. You ever been to Destin? Yes. Oh, it's been it's been way too long, but that used to be our family vacation spot. When you ever come back, come back, let me know. Um, I live oh. fifteen live fifteen minutes from Destin. I will take you up on that. Trust me. Fort, Fort Walton Beach, Florida. Yes. All right. So back to the wrestling. You have any hot takes on Adam Pierce? At, oh, oh my God. Okay, man. I love that guy. I love just randomly chiming in on his interactions on social media. Um, and he's talked to me a few times backstage, whether he remembers me from these posts or not, I don't know, but I always love throwing in, like, I used to be a big fan of the Colt Cabana podcast and he would go on there and talk about this character called Dice Man, Ronnie Vegas. So I will randomly throw in Dice Man bits on like little comments on things he says. And he was one of those matches that got away, uh, back in the day or that I was told was supposed to happen. Um, Back when I was the Mid-America X Division champion, I was feuding with the Mid-America Heavyweight champion. And originally, they were there was talk of bringing Adam into the territory since it was an NWA territory. And there was going to be a triple threat match between us. And I, I looked so forward to that. But then everything else happened. And it just it 
the NWA in Nashville at that time fell apart out of promoter squabbles and different things. And um, I think then it eventually ended up going to what it became then with Rob Conway and all those guys. So it just, it, it never happened, but I was told it was going to, and it, it's the one match I would have absolutely loved to have had. So I can say that I competed for the 10 pounds of gold. Yeah. That'd be awesome. And it couldn't have been a better guy to hold it either. JB. Like I said, keep up the good work. Thank you for coming on the Huge Pop Wrestling Podcast. Keep up the good work. And if you had that, if you if you got that call up to WWE, who would you love to work with? Man, oh, oh, there are so many guys, but I'm gonna tell you the the one that jumps out more than anybody is the Miz. I would love to work with the Miz. He's got the ultimate position there. I mean, like. He is the most reliable talent I will say they have, you know, like outside of a John Cena who's not there consistently. But you need him for media. You need him for uh, a talk segment. You need him for a quick squash match. You need him to be overheeled. That's that's the guy. And in all honesty, if he needed a manager, which he doesn't, I would kill to be in the managerial spot for him. Be his agent. Be something. But just to work with him, man, that guy does not get his flowers near enough. Absolutely. I I – I'm, he's the guy that I believe they under you. I don't, I don't want to say underutilize, but use him wrong in sometimes. And I have a, I, I see them doing the same thing with Grayson Waller. Right. I that's, that's the, I think with Grayson though, I think there's something coming from that because with this writer strike going on, certain people have a little bit more free time from, from everything I've heard, but I, from from what I've seen with Miz, it I can agree with that. But at the same time, if he wasn't so good at making chicken salad out of out of chicken crap, I don't think they would put him in that position because right, yeah. he he is a guy that can elevate you know elevate anybody around him and then still keep himself elevated. Where he could lose to the worst person they have up there, but then he could be in a title match the next week and it would still be believable. So right. I mean, he just. I, he, I, it's the worker's curse more than anything. You're so good that you make other people look better when you're when you're really the top of the top yourself. Yeah. You acknowledge the tribal chief? Oh, for sure. And I will say too, if you haven't been to a live event or been on the floor when that happens, like when his entrance happens, you're you're missing out. Like I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it right now. Just it is an absolute experience when his music hits and then he comes out, you see the fingers go up, the lights, the the camera lights go off on the phones, man. It is an absolute insane, undescribable experience. Yeah. He was in Pensacola two years ago. My son and I had third row seats to that. And that was just, so it was epic. It was fun. Um, So I'm going to ask the TikTok question of the of Russell talk, of Russell talk. So, all right. Who is the all-time WCW heavyweight champion? Man, is this including the NWA? Like before it became WCW or just WCW Turner time? Um, I'll just give you the answer. It's David Arquette. <laughs> oh, okay. Man, it's here I was going to go Hollywood Hulk Hogan. Yeah. yeah, I wish. I mean, that was my, that part of uh, – WCW is my favorite. I, I was a uh, I loved it when he came down when Hogan came down and and Daytona Beach. He walked in there and everybody was like, "Oh my God, Hulk Hogan to save Macho Man Randy Savage." And 
Nope. You know, and at that point in time, if you remember, wrestling was dead. It was. It was, it was like something's going to be big has to happen. You know, we see these Hall and Nash a couple of weeks before that doing mm-hmm. their things for about a month, like bullying uh, their uh, Eric Bischoff and all those yeah. guys. That's the thing, you know, whatever. And then all of a sudden, Hogan, man, everybody's like, oh, yeah, he's going to come down and save him. And he flipped. The ultimate, the ultimate good guy became. And that was to me, that was the restart of a of wrestling in that era. It was. And it I was, was like good. pumped about it. So my I that's my favorite, all-time favorite. Uh that's my that's my era of wrestling. I love it. So um, so yeah, uh not where I was gonna go with that. But no, <laughs> that was probably one of my favorite things in wrestling. So um how, who's your uh top male wrestler? Today and in the past. Okay. Um, I got to give this guy credit because I'm still trying to angle a match with him somehow, some way. But I've got to give for today, I've got to give Matt Cardona his flowers just for everything he's done to reinvent himself on the indies. The buzz that he's gotten and everything that he's doing right now is just absolutely insane. But it's so well-deserved. Like People are finally getting to see this talent that he's had. Um, so again, if that match will happen, I'd love to see, you know, I have, who's the bigger collector on the line or who's got more titles, which will probably be him, but we won't talk about that. But I would say Matt Cardona today. And then of yesterday, it would probably be Shawn Michaels. So Matt Cardona, if you heard this right, Glenn Hendricks today, 730, 2023, one year anniversary of his SummerSlam show is challenging you, Matt Cardona, on the Huge Pop Wrestling Podcast to come and take the AIWF title or put up your titles. What do you say, Matt Cardona? This is going to be out. This clip will be on TikTok. It's going to be on YouTube, Twitch, Facebook page. Answer the call. That's on you. I know you hear me, Matt. I know you, you hear go. me. There you go. Um, I, I Just real quick, I want to talk before I close the show. Yep. Just because I'm a podcast guy and JB's a podcast creator, tell us briefly your about your podcast. Absolutely. So it goes back to my catchphrase that I just used right there. I know you hear me. Um, I hemmed and hawed about starting a podcast for I don't know how long, and then inadvertently stumbled upon the uh, the podcast convention. I'm drawing a blank on the name of it, and just. Saw everybody there. I saw Conrad Thompson, saw Jeff Jarrett, Tony Schiavone, all these guys that I listened to and all these other people. And they were so motivated and so inspired about what they were doing. So I I just said, okay, it's time to finally do something and, you know, crap or get off the pot. So I started putting a list together of all these people that I've met, whether it's been acting, wrestling, uh, you know, entrepreneurs, like friends I've got that started tattoo shops, authors, all these people that I've come across that you know, people may know them, people may not know them, but they know something they're associated with, or they may have heard this person's voice in a big toy commercial and just don't know that person. So, you know, there's a chance to give these people a way to tell their stories that they may not have had. Like Chris Michaels, I mentioned earlier, was my first guest. That guy had a hand in helping with Brock Lesnar, Shelton Benjamin, Randy Orton, all these guys in OVW. He'd been on the cusp of being with all these major companies, and he just never got the contract himself. So it was a chance to tell his story and tell what kept him going, even though most people would have just thrown their hands up and said, I quit or, 
going back to the mental health aspect with actors, a lot of people in the creative endeavors tend to deal with anxiety and depression and all these different things. So selfishly too, I wanted to learn how they navigated these highs and these lows. And if it gave somebody else a chance to, you know, keep them from doing something that they couldn't come back from, then, you know, it was a success even if only one person listened, but it was just a way to get my friends stories out there, meet new people at the same time, and then come away from it feeling like I'd just been talking to a friend that I've never even met before. And, you know, as it's coming up this Friday will actually be two years of that. So, I mean, I'm still trying to figure out where the time went and where it goes from here, but it's, it's gotten me a lot of people on the show that I never ever thought I would get. And it all came down to just, uh, you know, a friend making the connection or, be just randomly shooting off an email and hoping for the best. You know, it's like all these different things that I never thought were possible ended up coming true. And it's still going to this day. People still listen. I don't, I'm trying to act like I'm not just like, why is this happening? But it's still like, it doesn't, it's one of those things where I never thought it would be me doing it, if that makes sense. But it's, it's been an experience and it's been a fun ride. Absolutely. hundred percent. Well, huge pop wrestling podcast fans, um, you heard it from Flynn Hendricks over the last hour. I am going to give Flynn Hendricks the floor um, in Flynn Hendricks mode, as you would. Any challenges, any warnings, where are you going to be? Um, let's close the show Flynn Hendricks style. Absolutely. So we're going to cover everything because a television champion, a world television champion, if that, isn't limited to just a wrestling ring. As a matter of fact, our friend Rick in the chat tonight, he joined us. I'm going to be on his show later this week. If you want to check out the PWZ Network, make sure you catch me on there for my second appearance. And then from there, I'm going to be in Ripley, Tennessee, two Thursdays later this month. And I'm also going to be in Monticello, Kentucky on the 19th. I'm going to be defending the AIWF World Television Championship wherever I go. If you want to bring me there, you want to bring me to your promotion, if you've got somebody that you think deserves the shot and deserves to be TV ready, line it up and I'll prove you wrong. And if you want to keep up with everything I'm doing, if you want to hear my podcast, if you want to buy the merch, you want to buy this shirt that my friend Katrina drew, very talented artist, go to Linktree slash the Flynn Hendricks. Check it all out. I've got social media, podcasts, see me on the news, see me you know, on Monday Night Raw, see me on SummerSlam, find out about the movie I did with Amazon. And then you're also going to know if you buy a shirt, if you buy something off my website, 10% of every sale goes to the Nashville Humane Society and to St. Jude. So, I mean, I might be a bad guy, but I've got a soft spot for animals and kids. So let's help them out too and get some soft, cool shirts while you're at it. But in all seriousness, Monticello, Kentucky on the 19th, Ripley, Tennessee later this month. I'm going to have all that on my social media. So go to Linktree slash The Flynn Hendricks. Get connected. Follow everything I'm doing and subscribe to the YouTube channel while you're at it. And subscribe to the Huge Pop Wrestling Podcast on top of that, lest I come chop you and then hold this title over your face and remind you that I'm better than you. And I know you hear me. And there you go. And then Matt Cardona, if you don't understand the warning, Flint Hendricks challenged you to come after that AIWF belt and maybe put up some of yours. Thank you for watching the Huge Pop Wrestling Podcast. Mr. Hendricks, JB, meet me in the meet me in the lobby. We love you guys and we're out. Extreme.